We know that many of our readers like to share their copy of the Church Times with others. That may not be possible at the moment. As an alternative, we're offering a short-term discounted subscription. Just £1 a week for 10 weeks. That includes UK delivery and there's no obligation to renew. You can purchase the subscription for yourself or as a gift for someone else. You'd enjoy all of our usual subscriber benefits, the paper in the post each week, all the news at churchtimes.co.uk, access to the digital archive, the app for iPhone and iPad, and listening to this podcast. To purchase a subscription, go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash 10 hyphen weeks. I'm Vicky Walker. I'm talking to Tara Isabella Burton about her book, Strange Rights, New Religions for a Godless World. Tara, could you tell me a little bit about your own experience and how it led you to write Strange Rights? Sure. So I think my, my Strange Rights is about the sort of contemporary uh, spiritual but not religious and everything from wellness to witches. But my own background was a bit kind of uh, old fashioned. So I, I mean, sort of raised nothingy Episcopalian, but I, uh, I spent 10 years in the UK studying theology and sort of planned to be an academic theologian and doing, you know, originally focusing on early Eastern Christianity and then sort of moving from there. Um, but I ended up leaving uh, because I wanted to go into journalism and, and working for, for Vox.com in uh, New York City. And there was a sort of huge difference between kind of a, the doctoral program in the Oxford Theology Department and uh, new media in New York, uh, culturally and, and uh, sort of intellectually. And I ended up, uh, during my time at Vox, doing a lot more work on yoga and witchcraft and these kind of modern religions that were particularly or sorry not that they're modern but the, their modern instantiation of them and the sort of mix and match approach that was it is increasingly common among um particularly american millennials and younger and that sort of wended its way into a book that's sort of about much more about these contemporary phenomena than about early eastern christianity although i think there's interesting um, parallels to be drawn between the two and uh here we are briefly what are the groups that you identified you talk about the remixed in the book who are the remixed sure so um the term that i use or the remixed is a kind of combination of a lot of different groups and what i want to resist is this sort of notion that america is getting more secular and so there's more and more um n-o-n-e-s nuns religious nuns out there um just just for background then about quarter of Americans are, are religious nuns and about um, 36% of people born after 1985. But that doesn't really tell the whole story because first of all, 72% of those say they believe in a higher power. 17% of those say they believe in the God of the Bible. But separately, if you're just looking at people who don't say religious um, on a form, you're not actually seeing the kind of complexities of spiritual um, change in America. 30% uh, of self-identified Christians say they believe in reincarnation. Of people who call themselves spiritual but not religion, huge portions still say Christian or Jewish or tick that box, even if they separately don't describe themselves as religious. So I argue in my book that what we're seeing is not a kind of secularization of America between the religious and the not religious, but a reimagining of religion as this kind of more individualized, more intuitional um, kind of religion of the self, where people want to mix and match and play around with different traditions, different belief systems, different practices. And remixed as a cultural phenomenon uh, is intended to capture 
all of these groups, the people who are explicitly spiritual but not religious, who belong to uh, some tradition or no tradition, the people who say they're religiously unaffiliated but also say they believe in a higher power, and people who say, you know, yes, I'm Christian, but also uh, read tarot cards or practice Zen Buddhist meditation and have a spiritual life that isn't limited, I call them religious hybrids, uh, to one kind of set of doctrines and practices. What do you identify as the things driving them? You refer to things in the book like optimism, hope versus disillusionment, perhaps a lack of identity, mm -hmm. a traditional identity. What were the key things coming out? Sure. So I think the, the main story for me, there's sort of two elements of it. And one is that this is a particularly American phenomenon and always has been. So this is what I call in the book intuitionalism, a, a focus on the self, on its instincts, on its desires as being not just good, sort of fine or acceptable, but cosmically good in tune with the universe. Um, this is a trend that I think we see a lot in American religious history, thinking of, for example, uh, New Thought, the sort of self-help phenomenon that became a real craze in the 1860s through the early Gilded Age. Um, movements like spiritualism, but also um, various great awakenings, uh, including sort of proliferations of evangelical Christianity, where there was a sense that kind of the prevailing religious identity or sort of Sunday morning in your pews was not intense enough, not emotionally arresting enough. People were going through the motions and we needed a, a revival of a kind of personal relationship with God. And that's something you see in everything from Methodist circuit riders to tent revivals to Billy Graham. Um, so you've got that sort of inherent intuitionalism in American religious life and paired with it an, an anti-institutionalism, a distrust of authority, of dogma, of doctrine, of a kind of top-down religious approach. Again, something with sort of a long American historical religious tradition, and, and you can certainly point to you know, so many factors for that, be it the separation of church and state, be it the uh, you know, sheer geographic size of America, the sheer space you have to kind of forge your own way. Uh, that said, this contemporary iteration, I think, is driven by two factors that really kind of intensify what we've seen historically in America. And the first and perhaps the most important is the internet. And I often like to say that, you know, what the printed book was to the Protestant Reformation in terms of a religious identity and approach to religion that was so wedded to a particular technological advance, so too is remix religion, very much a product of the modern internet. So this idea that you can sort of take an idea and then add your own spin to it and sort of send it back out into the ether that everything should be really tailor-made to you and individualized with a sort of sense of play about you know how do i make this my own these are our cultural trends uh, as the sort of creation of this participatory culture that are very much wedded to the internet and i think the fact that there is such a huge spike between sort of the american population and the Americans born after 1985, so Americans who grew up with the internet as a cultural force in terms of who is religiously unaffiliated. I think it's quite telling. And the second related factor, I think, at the root of this is this sort of, you know, the, this very much hyper-capitalist society in which we live that commodifies not just our choices, but our kind of 
self-constructions as miniature personal brands. And so what we consume, where we spend not just our money, but our attention, which in this age of the internet attention economy means money, you know, our eyeballs as clickbait, all kind of determine who we are such that, for example, you know, what news outlets we read, you know, what brands tote bag we carry, where we buy um, our food, what brands we buy, all of these sort of are caught up in a sense of creation of moral values. And that is also true, I think, for our spiritual values. So do we go to this wellness class, this boutique fitness studio? Do we practice self-care at Equinox? Do we um, buy uh, from companies like Pepsi or, or Gillette that have had uh, social justice be a major part of their branding? All of these questions, I think, are so caught up in our spiritual identities now that there is this sort of sense of, you know, as uh, major religious institutions, as indeed all institutions, particularly in America, have managed to um, lose public trust. And if you do look at the sort of statistics of public trust, uh, particularly young people, whether it's the police, the military, uh, the journalistic establishment, our, uh, our general sense of trust is, 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 is massively low and so much lower than that of our elders. Um, in the absence of that public trust, corporations have sort of muscled in on the space where, you know, it's, it's a sort of wild west of spirituality and, you know, Pepsi has come in or Equinox has come in to say like, here's how we market these, these sort of psychological, spiritual, moral visions and here's how we can sell them to you. And so the sort of internet and capitalism together, I think, have rather, or contemporary capitalism has have rather combined to take existing American trends and really kick them into high gear. Do you think the role of technology in that is to take that international as well? You said you spent a number of years in the UK, and I'd imagine there's quite a lot of cultural similarity in terms of things that people are seeking for, certainly social media. Uh, narrows the gap between the two cultures. Do you think that's something that will be more prevalent in the UK? Yeah. I mean, I think things like wellness culture and a certain kind of vision of self-care have definitely been exported. Certainly the language of the, the internet and the way in which fandom and fan culture and the idea that we should, you know, participate in the creation of our favorite cultural properties. Um, all of these have been exported. That said, there is something really distinctly American about this. And, and this is sort of both data-wise and also anecdotally having lived in both places, the kind of intensity of, you know, spiritual practices here and, and you know, every other person I know is involved in I mean, to be fair, I'm in New York, so it's quite quite specific uh, subset. But I, I'd say about half the people I know, if not more, are, are you know, practice witchcraft, um, at least in some sort of small, you know, candle burning, sage cleansing way, if not like a full time phenomenon. Um, and I think there, there have been, I think this is a Pew study, if I'm recalling correctly, that suggests that uh, American religious nuns, so people who, who don't identify with religion, still score higher on a kind of religiosity metric with um, questions like how often do you pray and how often do you feel a sense of wonder in the universe than do self-identified Christians in Western Europe. So you, you do have something specifically American about a lot of these trends. And I haven't researched them extensively um, beyond America, but I think there are sort of cultural exports that through the internet are kind of wending its way outward. And for example, the kind of aspirational wellness culture I think of as, as very much one. You make quite a bold statement in the book which is always fun when somebody does that and call it a great awakening and you say that it's one that you believe will stick. What's behind that claim? 
Um, I think just the fact that we are networked in a way that the, that we are, and those who come after us are such generations of the internet, so culturally informed by the internet, that I think it would be very difficult to go back to kind of hierarchical models of faith that do, or, or of faith or a faith practice, or the sort of top-down approach of uh, ascent to institutions, because I think that psychologically we are culturally um, quite removed from that. I think that, that, you know, and I say this as someone who is sort of quite many ways traditionally Christian, I sort of in my own life, I do go to a sort of liturgically quite high Christian uh, Episcopalian, quite Anglo-Catholic church. Um, but I think that more broadly, there is a sense in which we've gotten so used to kind of mixing and matching and creating our own everything that the moments that we might be asked to or feel or feel ourselves asked to kind of assent to something bigger to create a community that isn't determined by our desires and our affinities and like what we'd like to be part of but rather just by you know we're here we've got this community by virtue of like being human and being next to other humans who might not be like us um i think those things are more difficult and that we don't have a cultural capacity for that the same way should we um i i certainly think so but uh, and I, I wouldn't sort of venture to say that we will never get there as a culture or that something won't happen that that shifts that but i think that it's an uphill battle at this point to resist the kind of pervasive um influence of the internet you write about uh, the idea that for the remix spiritual and personal identity should be unique bespoke and authentic. How do you see that manifest? Um, so I think what people are looking for, at least the sort of subset of young, younger people, is, to, is the idea that um, there's a kind of an implicit theology in that runs from wellness culture to um, witch culture to, um, you know, the sort of polyamory and kink communities that I talk about. And, it, and it's very much rooted, again, in American New Thought traditions, in a bit of sort of transcendentalism and, and other sort of philosophical notions that were perhaps slightly more complex. But it goes something like this. I am in touch with the divine. I have a spark of divine energy within me. If somehow, if I can sort of free that self and give that self uh, enough attention, uh, allow it to flourish, it will in some sense, vibrate on the right frequency as the good energy in the universe. And this is sort of not really systematic as such, but it's something that you'll see in the branding imagery or in the language around um, wellness, self-care. And it, and it kind of comes down to taking care of myself, doing what I want is a revolutionary spiritual act because it gets me in touch with who I should be. Conversely, when society tells me not to do something, when I'm repressed, when I'm held back, whether it be by sort of repressive rules about sexuality or whether it's, um, you know, uh, the food I eat being polluted in some way by the pharmaceutical industry or so on and so forth. These things are bad. They're coming from outside and they're holding me back from the sort of expression of my full inner divinity. And that's very much um, this sort of implicit theological narrative of so much of American wellness culture and spiritual but not religious culture where it's not just a kind of nihilistic like well there's nothing out there so i might as well like spend a lot of time looking really pretty uh, because then i can get more things that i want it's more sort of 
by doing this, I'm getting in touch with my primal purpose. And you could very well say that this is, you know, a very effective marketing slogan that you're not only doing something, but you're able to kind of code it as something that's, that's spiritually good as well as just pragmatically good. But I think it does come from a long, distinctively American philosophical lineage. For example, the prosperity gospel, which, you know, I think something about, I want to say around 60% of evangelical churches subscribe to some version of that, which says, if you tithe enough, if you are faithful enough, God will reward you with material prosperity, with, with health. This is not, you know, your material conditions in this life are an indication of divine favor. I mean, and certainly we can still see this as well in, in contemporary uh, evangelical Christianity in the United States. And, uh, but the spiritual but not religious iteration of it still has that kind of spiritualized character. Um, one of my favorite statistics that I always bring up is that in, in 2018, the media company Vice, they have a, a, a branding agency arm called Virtue, which, which is itself, I think, quite funny and telling, found that about 54% of millennials said they want to shop uh, at brands that feed their soul. And about 77% say they want at least want brands that share their values. And I think the idea that we, we, we could conceive of brands as something that could feed our souls, that, 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 that could have values. Um, and I think authenticity as a kind of construct is once that it's real, it's not manufactured, even when it's quite literally being manufactured, is um, representative of this hunger that we collectively have for sort of meaning being offered to us, even as we're quite resistant to the notion that we, we should not have the agency to make that meaning look exactly how it's convenient for us. You talk as well about being sold meaning, that spirituality mm. sells in the way that sex sells used to be a go-to. What does that look like for the average person? So my, one of my favorite examples is um, back in, I think it's 1989, the razor company, uh, Gillette, had this uh, very famous Super Bowl ad uh, called The Best a Man Can Get. And it was this sort of rugged, sexy guy, like looking great with his razor, and there was this beautiful woman, and it was that was his aspiration. That's what was being sold to the user of the razor was if you use this razor, you're going to be a sexy man and you're going to get those sexy girls. And then fast forward to, I think it was 2017, uh, right after, or it would have been early 2018 because uh, after the fall 2017 uh, sort of launched the Me Too movement, there was a commercial called The Best a Man Can Be. And it was sort of a father teaching a son how to be a good man and how not to kind of participate in toxic masculinity. And it was extremely controversial as a commercial, uh, in part because there are people who felt it was kind of politically correct in this sort of silly way. And there were people who were, from a feminist perspective, felt it was quite pandering. Um, but I think it was really telling that on the Super Bowl, the sort of most uh, sex and women day, day of the year in you know, the American calendar in many ways, where ads are about, you know, what can you get? that this company felt that the best way forward would be to sell this vision of buy this product and you are supporting a good cause, you're supporting a better world. Um, there's other examples of this. There's um, Pepsi did a um, commercial with Kendall Jenner, one of the, the sort of Kardashian uh, siblings that um, had her sort of giving a, a, a Pepsi to a, a, a police officer during a anti-racism rally. Uh, and this was itself kind of roundly mocked too. But the idea that these, that we can sort of sell and commodify um, moral visions. And certainly it's also true in, you know, in not in progressive causes as the current uh, 
of state in the States of the, the bean brand Goya, which is now because the CEO praised Trump. Suddenly Trump's got Goya products on his Instagram and you might buy them because you want to say like, I don't like these people. I want to, I, I, or rather I don't like these sort of social justice types. And I want to show that by buying beans or Chick-fil-A or Hobby Lobby. There are certainly brands who do that for different uh, audiences, but the idea that your political identity can be expressed by what you buy um, is, is I think, really, really distinctive. And I think the fantasy that we get in, in purchasing these products is a kind of ritual that's not so dissimilar from a kind of religious observance that we are doing a sort of small symbolic act that doesn't cost us very much that still manages to kind of make us feel something very strongly and make us feel like we're part of a community, but we don't really have to do much more than, you know, not only do we have to buy, not have to even buy the Pepsi, we can just sort of retweet the Pepsi ad. And that's enough in some way. And that's, um, I think there's, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. And one is, is sort of the natural and even my natural response, which is like, this is extremely troubling. Um, and this is the sign of a very broken society. But I also think perhaps a slightly more optimistic way of looking at it is that we are um, people, human beings, who have a deep moral hunger. We have a hunger for spiritual meaning. And because we are in an era where, you know, our public trust has so collapsed in religious institutions, we are all a bit at sea and we are, there is a genuine hunger that may be, um, being kind of perversely stoked by self-interested parties, but that there is a recognition that we have a, a spiritual longing as human beings that is not satisfied by the rather soulless world in which we're living. And so perhaps there's a note of hope there too, that this is something on which um, we do feel a pull. You draw a distinction between institutional and intuitional religion, mm -hmm. which seems a helpful shorthand. Have you encountered any resistance to what you've uncovered? Any degree of moral panic even about some of the things that you're identifying as new religions in effect? Yes, I mean, I think that the, there's sort of different individual um, groups that I look at have, have often stoked more or less um, kind of controversy. And I think that for example, the, the social justice movement, um, which, which I talk about in my book, is perhaps one of the, the strongest examples of a kind of new religion in part because it has a kind of clear eschatological vision and offers a sense of solidarity that, let's say, going to soul cycle doesn't. Um, often I found, particularly in the in conservative media, there is a sense in which discussions of social justice as a religion can be reduced to well, it's like a cult, they're crazy zealots. This is sort of a bad, scary thing wholesale and the conversation ends there. And I think that that's sort of quite disappointing because yes, I do think we can talk about it usefully as a, religious, as a religion and in those frameworks. But some of that is saying, you know, what needs uh, in this modern world of ours, does it appeal to? What hunger does it appeal to? How is it so successful? And what can we kind of learn from this? And I think that there is a bit of a kind of panic that there might be a, a powerful community force group that gets people kind of as emotionally fired up as a traditional religion might but that is not super well understood and so there's I think a lot that's been the sort of most sensitive topic in the book uh, in many ways. That said I think there's a sort of broader panic too around the notion that this is uh, we live in a society of selfish millennials taking selfies and making their own religions and I think that's 
sort of attitude is one that you know people even quite sympathetic readers of the book um sometimes it's sort of sort of first desire to take away and something that it's something i'd like to resist a bit because as far as i see it this is not a story of like individual young people being selfish and self-centered so much as it is a story of institutional failure and i think if you can't trust your church or your political leaders or your journalistic establishment or your academic establishment or your scientific and pharmaceutical establishments, it makes absolute total sense that you turn inward and rely on yourself and on your intuitions and say like, I can't trust those things, but I can trust myself. I know I'm not lying to myself. And that's, um, I think it's really telling that there is a really big shift in a lot of these movements around 2016, around the election of Donald Trump. There was of course this rise in kind of feminist witchcraft as a progressive activist movement. But more broadly, I think there was the sense, not just that Trump got elected, but that this unexpected thing happened that our pundits couldn't predict, that our political system couldn't predict. And if, these, you know, if we can't trust our systems anymore, then we might as well read tarot cards. This is, this is, this is a sort of, I think that that's quite a normal response. And I'd be, I'm very resistant to accounts of that that would reduce it to a kind of millennial selfishness without that greater picture. Do you think that the effect perhaps of significant parts of the institutional church vocally supporting Trump might have hurried along that widening in the divide? Absolutely. I mean, I say that the, the institutional church, but that, I mean, that is a quite specific subset, which is to say it's 81% um, of white evangelicals voted for Trump. And I, I want to say that they were the only religious bloc to have come out significantly in support of Trump. I think mainline Protestants were pretty, pretty evenly split and their supports now wane. So they're slightly against, but, you know, closer. And then um, every other group, um, there's sort of both racial and religious lines. I think like white Catholics broke for Trump, Latino Catholics and Catholics of color tended to um, vote for Hillary back in 2016. So it's, it's true that perhaps the idea of like a religious establishment supporting Trump is a bit oversold. That said, I think in America and in the media and in a kind of public vision of uh, what religious life looks like, it has been very much the case that Trump has wielded a kind of Christian nationalism um, very publicly. Yeah, so specifically a white evangelical nationalism, but that doesn't necessarily sort of translate um, on, a, on a screen in the same way. And um, there is a sense that, that this is what religion has wrought. And many of the, the sort of self-identified witches or people who are spiritual but not religious in that way will say, you know, often code their worship and code their practice very much against Christianity and specifically against like the GOP Christianity Alliance. So for example, modern witch culture. Um, and the, here's an interesting distinction is that the, the sort of Wicca of the 50s and 60s and the kind of early new age movement, which was very focused on kind of images of softness, like we're not bad, scary witches, it's love and light and the rule of three and these kind of tropes that came about in kind of 70s new age space where, where witchcraft was very much, there was such an effort made to say, you know, we are not Satanists, we are not those bad witches. Whereas witch culture of the 2016 era is very much likely to say like, yes, we practice black magic. Yes, we might even worship Satan. And the reason is that it's very specifically political 
radical to be like, we are not Christian. We are not playing by Christian rules. You know, we embrace the sort of Milton vision of the devil as someone who is resisting this tyrannical authoritative vision of religious life. We don't want, uh, we don't want a patriarchal white supremacist faith. And this is what we'll do to combat that. Uh, one of the figures I quote in my book, who is, uh, owns this, this um, pagan bookstore practice-based Catland, wrote this sort of zine about uh, curses and, and black magic and how a real witch really ought to embrace these things because it's the, the language of the voiceless and it's colonialist and sexist and offensive to kind of demand that only happy, pretty fluffy magic be used when, when really, you know, we should be cursing our oppressors. And they end up saying, you know, I could not go to the police and get justice when I was raped. This is my only option. So I think that politicization of kind of language of diabolism and black magic and all of these notions is very specifically pegged to a response to what's seen as the failures of institutional American Christianity. You asked the question as well about whether something could emerge from the remixed intuitional varieties into something resembling a civil religion replacing Protestantism. What are you picturing when you think of that? So I think that of the contenders, and I name a couple in my book, the social justice movement seems to have, and again, a sort of caveat that it's not one movement, it's not sort of, there's enough internal dissent and, and disagreement there that I don't want to kind of say that there's, there's sort of one you know, political party, but I think that that language, that um, kind of, especially as members of that group and activists kind of do get a bit older, get a bit more sort of professionally uh, successful and present people who were, you know, college activists are now in the position of being kind of staff writers and so on and so forth, that there is, there is a cultural kind of civil, civic religion around social justice, albeit not, it's not, you know, hugely widespread, but I think it's sufficiently widespread to have kind of the force of a collective uh, moral phenomenon. That said, I think another kind of movement that we don't think about as much because it's a bit more insidious is the kind of techno-utopian vision of um, the successor to the Californian ideology as it used to be called, uh, which is now something that I think we interact with, most of us who have smartphones, without thinking about it. And that is the ideal, the sort of libertarian ideology of kind of optimization and self-betterment and through a kind of self-hacking and this sort of slightly um, objectivist vision of, you know, I want to maximize everything for myself. And I think that we don't think in the same way because there isn't the same cultural conversation about techno-utopianism as there is about social justice. And yet 40% of us, um, or rather 40% of couples who got together in the past year met online. You know, we're meeting our partners through apps like Tinder and OkCupid where, um, uh, hiring people to clean our homes uh, through TaskRabbit, or we are working on uh, as gig workers on places like TaskRabbit and Instacart. There's a sort of constant creation, both of the gig economy and of the sort of internet form of self-branding that we're all plugged into. And so it's, it might be a bit more, uh, a bit less obvious, but I think perhaps more pervasive. And then the final um, movement that I talk about in my book is what I call the atavistic right or the sort of it goes as far as the kind of intense alt-right that's that's largely American phenomenon but also includes the kind of fans of Jordan Peterson and members of men's rights groups and kind of various groups of people who 
on the one hand, claim to hate um, the neoliberal modern world up to and including, you know, often the targets are feminism and social justice and political correctness. But at the same time, a lot of the, um, the language isn't that different or how they work isn't that different. It's a desire to like lift weights and get really into paleo diets in order to become a kind of pure form of man. And that, that's not so different from Gwyneth Paltrow uh, selling a kind of much more feminized version of like purify your body. And it, it, indeed the, um, the Infowars conspiracy theorist Alex Jones and Gwyneth Paltrow, both of whom sell supplements through their online store, often sell chemically identical products. And one of them calls it magic fairy moon juice sex dust. And the other one calls it like He-Man super strong vitality potion. But it's, it's the same thing. And the idea that you can kind of consume the right products and they will make you more authentic and get you away from a broken society, whether that society is described as um, sclerotic, feminized, social justice world that we have to get away from because we're real men, or it's described as this sort of toxic, oppressive, capitalist world that's keeping you away from having your, your farm fresh food. The, the sort of rhetoric or, or the shape of the rhetoric is very much the same. However, the imagery is different. You've slightly answered this already, but I wonder if you think that there will be new orthodoxies that emerge that become as sacrosanct as the ones that they're seeking to replace. I think so. I mean, I think absolutely. And again, it's the sort of thing where I think there's, there's sort of more obvious examples like the kind of social justice example, because it's been so in the news at the moment that there are ways of talking that are no longer uh, acceptable, or there's, there's sort of ways that we might collectively look at the world that, that are quite different from, from how it might have been however many years ago. But that said, I think there's other orthodoxies that are no less worth looking at. And I think the kind of discourse that we have, and this is, this is sort of more specifically American thing, but the, you're not successful, you didn't work hard enough, which has of course always been sort of encoded in the Protestant ethic already, but I think has kind of gone into overdrive in the, in the tech age of, um, you know, did you optimize yourself? Are you being your best self? And if you're not being your best self, it's kind of your fault. You're letting bad energy in. Um, trying to think exactly how to say this. You know, you didn't brand yourself well. And I think these are orth sort of cultural orthodoxies that again are, are less, um, less obvious that were maybe not as much part of the cultural conversation as they could be. But I think notions of sort of obsession with personal responsibility and with optimizing our professional and personal output, especially through technology, is itself a kind of orthodoxy that um, goes much more unchallenged. Do you think that there are lessons for the institutional church in all of this? I'm sensing that there isn't a wider awareness of some of these shifts that you're talking about, unless people have specifically been exposed or gone looking. What, what has the institutional church to learn from what you've uncovered? So I think the, the absolute biggest thing is, is that, um, and this comes from a, a study that I talk about earlier in my, very early in the book, which is that most people who become religious nuns are not people who are driven out by conservative fundamentalism. Um, that is the, you know, the case certainly for, for some people, particularly people who might have historically been marginalized in churches. For example, about 46% of queer Americans are unaffiliated, double the national average. But more broadly, it's more likely that it's um, someone whose parents didn't talk about religion that much. That kind of 
maybe they ticked a box but and went to church on Christmas and Easter or went on the high holy days but life at home was very much just eh, be a good person it doesn't really matter and so the freaking away now is not people losing their faith but people no longer thinking it's important to tick the box when there's other things they could be doing and I think the thing we need to learn from that combined with the fact that there's a really sincere spiritual and moral hunger is that I think churches need to preserve and embrace their distinctiveness, including their theological distinctiveness. They're not going to compete on fun. You know, Hillsong aside, they're not going to compete on nice social media presence or sexy music or any of the kind of entertainment metrics. I think the only way that the church moves forward is to say, you know, what we believe is weird. It's pretty weird. But, you know, I'm speaking again from a Christian perspective specifically, but like a guy died, he came back. That happened. And I think that preserving that and saying we are, we are making a, a real truth claim about what happened um, over many thousand years ago in the world and what you glean from that and where you move forward on that is a product of these distinct and sometimes difficult theological beliefs. And I mean, if people are going to take, you know, soul cycle classes every morning at 6 a.m., they've clearly got the stamina to like do hard things. It's not that people don't want to if anything it seems that people seek out kind of challenge and intensity but i think that those churches and i think this is particularly evident in the sort of disproportionate decline of the protestant mainline in america compared to the evangelical church although that too is in a sort of slower decline but the idea that if church is just a just a place you go for community and just a place you go for some sort of vague family values then of course it's going to be less appealing than yoga and why shouldn't it if that's all it offers so i think really holding to a distinctiveness that this is a theology first and truth claims about the world first and you know sunday school and coffee hour second is really the only way to go how has the pandemic changed things in the uk we've seen religion taking to the streets both in practical care in communities and in public worship literally on the streets uh, while church buildings have been closed, internet searches for prayer have increased dramatically. Do you think we'll see at all a shift back to tradition, to familiarity? What do you think could happen? Well, I think it's difficult in the States in part because reopening has been so politicized that those churches, you know, there is a quite sense of those churches that are reopening now are not exclusively, but, you know, the mega churches that reopened first or, or that pushed to reopen first are, are where we're also seeing cases and they've sort of doubled the super spreader incidents. And so I think that there is a kind of sense in which the, the existing polarization that we've had politically is just being reflected along those ecclesiastical lines as well. Uh, the same way, you know, mask wearing has become politicized. Um, that said, I think beyond just the question of what do you worship in a physical space there's been an awareness that you can uh, most churches are going online you can dial into your prayer group or your zoom um, sort of zoom prayer group or a live webcast of church and i think on the one hand i think that's that's you know quite interesting in terms of it opens up to like do you dial into the church you always dialed into or do you dial into it you know the church from your your hometown that you haven't been to in, in years and so there's a kind of sense in which the geographic element of faith is suspended. But that said, I think that, that there's also a danger there that it leads itself to, you know, 
already there's conversations within the Christian community about like church shopping and, and which is again part of this sort of wider capitalist question is you know are you looking for the church near you or are you looking for the church with the best music and the theology that more closely matches yours and already that's the sort of question within a city like New York where there's however many churches within a 15 minute commute how much more is that going to be an issue when you can dial in or zoom into any church in the country? So I think these are questions that are emerging. Um, but I think that there is, I think that we may see more hunger for community, whether or not it's traditional religious observance. Uh, I talked to recently, for example, a, a woman who was a sort of solitary witch practitioner, but wanted to meet other witches online and have like a witch get together every week or so precisely because the pandemic was so isolating and lonely. So we may see people tending towards group affiliation, especially when in the next stage, people might not be sure, are we going to go back on the lockdown? Are we going to stay out? And therefore I want to make sure I've got my group of people that I'm always going to be able to rely on. Um, but that ne doesn't necessarily have to be organized. This is going off in a little bit of a different direction now, but it seems relevant to perhaps traditional religion. Because you ask in the book of the generation that feels that it's reinventing religion for themselves, you ask who is willing to kneel. And I wondered what had changed since the Black Lives Matter movement has picked up momentum where kneeling has in effect been a key symbol. Yes, well, I mean, in, in the context of, of that, um, which was obviously written at this point, you know, a year ago with, with uh, quite the same connotation, um, that there is a real danger in a lot of these self-focused movements that how do you kind of also express solidarity, express community, kind of be in the world rather than in a kind of world of your own creation. And I think that absolutely one of the reasons that sort of various social justice movements of which the, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is one and sort of particularly pressing example is its ability to kind of emphasize both solidarity with one another, but also a vision of the future that is better sort of for one's children and for you know, humankind's children, that there will be a better world at the end of this. And it's not purely self-focused. It's not solipsistic it's not the you know the nihilism of a kind of self-care that is just about maximizing our value and i think that that is why some of these movements which i mean and there there are certainly things one can say about what they owe to the kind of intuitionalist model the focus on kind of an inward purification and particularly in um, the slight sort of more corporate versions of that something like for example uh, white fragility's focus on a kind of internal, like self-help model rather than a more structural approach. Um, these are certainly things that we can talk about as inheritors of the modern intuitionalist culture more broadly. But I think the success of that movement is in the sort of moral, a moral framework that valorizes community, which is something that we, we do very desperately need. One final question then. You write that we do not live in a godless world, but in a profoundly anti-institutional one. So where do you think God resides now? Well, I think I won't say everywhere where he's always been, um, but rather that I think that our resistance to um, institutional models of faith can actually be quite a good thing, which is to say um, there is a danger of God being so allied with 
institutions that, that you know, we, we, we do tick the boxes, we go sit on Sunday, we do everything kind of right and don't think seriously about what this actually means, what we know about how this should actually affect us. And I think in many ways, speaking as a Christian, that Christianity has been at its best when it's been a bit countercultural, a bit able to, if not a lot, but able to combat the era in which it, it lives and call to account the Roman Empire, call to account wealth and power. And I think that theological visions that embrace that are bound to be um, perhaps more pertinent, more pressing than a kind of comfortable stasis. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more. The music for this podcast was provided by Sought After Sounds. Tune in next Friday for the next episode.